Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Two Week to Govern, Majority Party Power and Appropriations in the U.S. Senate. The book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2015, and I have the pleasure today to have a conversation with the author, Peter Hansen. I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Peter. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and we'll be talking today with Peter Hansen, who is the author of Two Week to Govern, Majority Party Power and the Appropriations in the U.S. Senate. Peter, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on and to uh, talk about this uh, timely book, before we get to the book, uh, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Uh, where are you now? Where, where have you been in the past? Sure. Uh, I'm currently an assistant professor of political science at the University of Denver, uh, and I received my Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley in 2010. Wonderful. And we're, we're definitely not going to hold that against you because we've had so many, I'm sure, of your classmates on the podcast in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sort of a stream, you know, of, of all the good American politics people who uh, do such great work now. And and uh, and you are now included in our, you know, our, our Berkeley Alumni Association on the podcast. Um, let's let's talk about uh, about the book um, and, and about your some of your own. What brings you to this? Um, you worked on the Hill for Senator Tom Daschle for a while. Um, I was wondering uh, that whether there were times during this period of your life where you saw this book in your future, um, or, or perhaps the senator kept you too busy to, to think about that. But what if you just sort of take us back to that time period and tell us a little bit about it and, and whether you sort of were imagining writing this book when you were, when you were doing this, this actual work? Well, I worked for Senator Daschle in Washington from 1996 to 2002. Um, and it was a, just a tremendously exciting time in my life. Um, I was recently graduated from college. I was to be in Washington. And of course, Senator Daschle was the Democratic leader. And so working in his office uh, gave me a just an extraordinary vantage point um, from which I could observe the Senate. Um, and very early on in my work for him, uh, one of the things I was asked to do was to keep track of the annual appropriations bills. 
Um, and so as part of that work, I would meet with the appropriations clerks. I would watch the bills as they progressed from committee through the Senate floor. I would uh, keep tabs on their content. Um, and that is when I, I first began to notice uh, the patterns that I describe in the book. Um, I knew when bills were not going to the floor. I had some sense of the reasons for that. I could see what happened when they did reach the floor. Um, and I was very curious about this uh, practice of packaging them together into omnibus appropriations bills. Um, but of course, uh, when you're working in the Senate, you're so busy that you can observe a lot of things, but you don't really have an opportunity to pursue the answers. And uh, so one of the things I uh, became interested in after I left the Senate was going to graduate school. So I um, could start to dig into some of those questions I formed while in the Senate. Now, now let's let's start with some terminology because I think it it will help to sort of set up what what you specifically do in the in the book. Um, so let's let's start with that. I wonder if you could sort of describe for us uh, the regular order, uh, which is you know a, a big part of the book, and also what a continuing resolution is. Um, you know, what are these two terms? What do they mean, both in sort of definitional terms, but also in in um, you know how how they're practiced? Sure. Um, well, for uh, decades. The standard way of adopting the budget um, has been to adopt um, around a dozen appropriations bills through what's known as the regular order. Uh, and in the regular order, uh, those bills are initiated by the House of Representatives. They go through House Appropriations Committee uh, through each of its different subcommittees. They then go to the House floor for debate and amendment. Uh, the House approves them. They go over to the Senate. Historically, the Senate uh, then just worked off the House bills. So today, they actually write their own. Um, but the procedure was basically the same, that each of the Senate subcommittees would um, produce an appropriations bill within its jurisdiction. That bill will go to the floor for debate and amendment and then go to the president uh, after the two chambers reached an agreement. Um, so the basic process was that around a dozen individual bills would be brought to the floor and debated and amended on an individual basis. Um, and that's the process that Richard Fenno describes in his uh, famous work, The Power of the Purse. Um, and it's a process that's broken down today. Um, and the pattern today has become very different. Um, even though members of Congress still say they prefer the regular order, um, they might initiate the process that way. They might start approving individual bills in the House. Some of them might make their way over to the Senate. Um, but the process really breaks down. Uh, at one of those two points, either in the House or in the Senate. And then the alternative, since the budget has to be passed, um, is for the chambers to collaborate um, and package the bills together. And they can do that one of two ways, uh, through something called a uh, year-long continuing resolution, uh, which technically is supposed to only be an extension of previous year's bills, but in practice often includes new legislation. Um, or they can simply bundle all those appropriations together into an omnibus appropriations bill. Um, I, I treat those two variations of the package as um, part of the same family, uh, in part because it's very rare to see a pure continuing resolution. Typically, they contain new legislation and look a lot like an omnibus appropriations bill. Now, you suggest that there's been um, a couple of dominant theories of majority power in the Senate, but that you in some ways sort of are offering a third way. I wonder if you could uh, describe to us 
the um, these existing theories and uh, that, that sort of sit behind your analysis and also what, what your take is, um, um, how you're coming to this. Sure. Um, well, I use the appropriations process to uh, try and answer some longstanding questions about the g- degree to which uh, the Senate majority party uh, can influence legislative outcomes. Um, and uh, traditionally, we have thought of the Senate majority party um, is really lacking that ability. Um, and that's because of the Senate's unique rules. In the Senate, there is the right to unlimited debate. Um, members can also offer as many amendments they want, um, typically without any kind of germaneness requirement. So those amendments uh, can be on any subject. And the combination of those two factors essentially forces the majority party to accommodate the minority or even individual members in order to pass legislation. Um, And so we've often thought about uh, legislative outcomes in the Senate as really being determined by pivotal voters on the floor um, as opposed to um, by the majority party. Um, Now, there has been a revisionist movement in in recent years um, uh, that has challenged that notion. And and there's been some interesting studies coming out from people like Sean Gilmart and Jeff Jenkins and um, Nate Monroe and Kristen Hartog, and um, they have made the argument that the Senate looks a lot more like the House um, than has typically been understood, uh, that the majority party can successfully keep items off the agenda um, and actually push its preferred policies um, to be adopted. And um, that's quite a radical shift in the way we've talked about the Senate. Uh, in my own study, um, I, my findings uh, are really found somewhere in between these uh, these two positions. Um, I argue that the Senate has more power to influence legislative outcomes than we've typically understood, um, and uh, but that its influence generally falls short of an ability to meet partisan policy goals. Uh, so uh, what I describe in the book is that uh, the Senate can shield its or the Senate majority party can shield itself from some hostile amendments, although it can't do this perfectly. Um, it can package bills together as a way to ease the passage of a budget. And that by doing this, um, it achieves the critical goal of protecting its party reputation, uh, which is valuable to members. Uh, but that influence generally doesn't extend uh, to securing its favorite policy goals. Now, you focus in the book primarily on the appropriations process. Uh, how similar is this process to the, the, the majority power and majority rule in, in other circumstances? Is, uh, is what you're doing um, narrowly applied just to the spending issues, or, or how, how much can we generalize this to, to other issues of majority power? Well, I limit my claims to the appropriations process because it's, it's a relatively unique uh, form of legislation in Congress. Um, there, there are a couple of distinguishing features about it. Um, first, and, and what's really critical to my study, is that the appropriations process happens every year um, through a relatively standard set of procedures. Uh, that makes it ideal um, for analyzing change over time and for trying to understand how, how different um, arrangements of the majority party's characteristics uh, may affect the way in which it manages the appropriations bills. Um, on the other hand, the thing that's unique about appropriations bills is that both parties agree that they must be passed, even if they disagree about the details. Um, and 
that tends to constrain the use of the filibuster. It's not that um, the parties never filibuster a bill, that clearly they do, um, but that the cost of that filibuster increases as we near the end of the fiscal year and and start to face the potential uh, that the government may shut down. Um, so whereas you can filibuster other kinds of legislation really indefinitely, um, you can't carry that strategy too far in terms of appropriations bills um, because you may ultimately force a shutdown of the government that both parties view as very costly. So what, what, is, uh, what did you find? Um, maybe you could just tell us, uh, I mean, there's lots of original findings in the book, but I wonder if you could just sort of outline a bit for us um, what, what you found. What are the circumstances when the regular order will be abandoned? And, and conversely, what are, what are the circumstances um, when uh, the regular order will be, will be pursued? What, what are the findings of this book? Sure. Um, well, one of the things that's really fascinating about the appropriations process is it gives us the chance um, to see what did not happen, uh, which is always hard in Congress. It's easy to see what did happen in Congress. It's often harder to know what action they did not take. Um, so what I do in my book is I uh, use as a dependent variable um, the majority party's failure to vote on an appropriations bill in the regular order. And I try and understand uh, the kind of circumstances that are associated with that. Um, now, this isn't a subject that's been well studied. And in fact, typically when people talk about the budget process, when when they talk about appropriations bills not being passed and the majority party creating omnibus packages, they, they typically call it a, a train wreck or a failure or something like that. What I argue in the book is that this is actually a form of influence that we haven't identified, uh, that the majority party is actually manipulating the way in which appropriations bills come to the floor in order to achieve its goals. Um, so the basic argument is that uh, when the majority party is weak because it is heterogeneous, uh, because it has a small margin of control, uh, or because it's especially distant from the minority party and therefore facing a high likelihood of, of dilatory tactics, um, that it is likely not to bring bills to the floor on an individual basis. And the reason it does that is because when it does bring those bills to the floor, um, it may face dilatory tactics by the minority, it may face a wave of amendments um, that put it in the position of, of risking being rolled or just taking politically embarrassing votes. Um, they may face gridlock. And recognizing uh, those costs, uh, they simply take an alternative path. They don't bring those bills to the floor on an individual basis. Um, and instead, uh, they package them together. And by packaging them together, they achieve two goals. Uh, first, they create a broader coalition of support uh, for those bills, and, and so they ease the passage of the budget, and they also uh, head off uh, the potential for gridlock. Um, but the second thing they accomplish, and this is, is not very well understood, is that they reduce uh, the overall uh, number of votes that take place related to amendments in the appropriations process. And that simply is for a pretty obvious reason. If, if you don't bring bills to the floor, uh, in the regular order, um, then you don't get a chance to vote on them or amend them. Um, if then you only bring them to the floor as part of a package, um, then unless the total amount of amending that takes place on that package is greater than what you would have had in regular order, um, you're going to cause a net decline uh, in amending. You're going to suppress amendments. Uh, and that's exactly the pattern you see empirically. Um, so there was uh, there were two years, I think it was 2003, 2004, 
uh, when uh, the Republican majority illustrated this uh, quite well. And in 2003, Majority Leader Bill Frist uh, brought the appropriations bills to the floor in regular order uh, and uh, was met by a wave of Democratic amendments. Uh, some of those amendments were aimed at uh, forcing Republicans to take politically painful votes. In other cases, the Democrats rolled the Republicans. In one case, they filibustered a bill. Uh, they really uh, tied the Republican majority in knots. Um, well, uh, Frist learned from that experience. Um, the following year, he simply opted uh, not to bring most of the bills to the floor. He brought a few of them, um, but he simply bypassed the floor, waited till the end of the session, and uh, brought a package to the floor instead. The net effect of that strategy was to cause the number of votes on amendments to decline from over 100 to, I think, just 35 uh, in 2004. Um, so this is not well understood that the majority party, uh, by manipulating uh, the appropriations process, uh, can actually pretty effectively uh, shield itself to some degree from amending. I wonder if we can go back to Senator Daschle for a bit. Um, I wonder what you think he makes of these findings. Have you have you talked about what you've found? Uh, do you think that this would be uh, a surprising uh, uh, analysis to him or or do you think that um, sort of existing in a in a um, you know uh, longtime member of the Senate, this is kind of uh, uh, understood? Um, has has he read the book? Has has he given you any feedback yet? Yeah, he he's been very uh, incredibly helpful with this book. I should say one of the the really fun things about this book was that I um, took the time to interview Senator Daschle and Senator uh, Trent Lott, um, as well as. Um, uh, current and, and former uh, very senior staff members in Congress who were very experienced in the appropriations process. Um, and, and those interviews really provided important interpretive context uh, for the findings I present in this book. Um, so, of course, Senator Daschle, uh, when I was interviewing him, um, uh, said that, uh, you know, when you bring a package to the floor instead of individual appropriations bills, um, you suppress amending in the Senate. Members have less of an opportunity to amend that package uh, than they would in regular order. Um, so uh, his arguments in that regard were one reason why I did why I took a close look at amending patterns. Um, and he's been very kind about the book. He uh, he wrote a very nice recommendation about it, um, and then sent me a very nice letter. So I've been really uh, really thrilled to uh, be able to base the book in part on my experience in his office and, and then have these follow-up conversations with him about it. Yeah, I, I can imagine. So uh, this book is out, uh, as I often ask. Uh, what's what's next from you? What's what's the next project that you're working on? Um, more more Senate research or, or something else? Tell us what's on your, on your desk now. Well, at the moment, I'm turning my attention to the House of Representatives. Um, it, it's sort of ironic. You know, we, we know so much more about the House than we do about the Senate. Um, but after I finished writing this book, I realized that there were a lot of questions about the House appropriations process which haven't been well answered. Um, one of the most interesting ones to me is that even in this time of very high partisanship in the House, they continue to bring appropriations bills to the floor under an open rule. Um, and that's at a time when they're imposing a closed rule on every other category of legislation. Um, and so it's interesting to me that appropriations bills have been spared the heavy-handed majority tactics that we see elsewhere. Um, and in fact, when you look at debate on appropriations bills in the House, uh, 
you see that they are very actively amended. That amendments are offered by both parties. That amendments from both parties are approved. Um, and it's the kind of uh, old-fashioned lawmaking that, you know, I think no one would have been surprised to see in, in the 70s and early 80s, but I think most people assumed was gone in today's house. Uh, so I'm writing about that and, and trying to understand uh, the reasons why those patterns have uh, continued to be sustained um, despite the heavy levels of polarization that we have. Peter's book, again, is Too Weak to Govern, Majority Party Power and Appropriations in the U.S. Senate. The book is published by Cambridge University Press and available widely. Peter, thank you very much for your time today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.